when he came to this earth as the final prophet, the final messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he brought two things and he left behind a legacy of two things. If we hold firm to those two things, if we, if we grasp those two things, or for the select few, if they delve deeply into those, thing, those two things, they will remain firm on their iman, and they may even be a means of guiding others on this path of iman. What were those two things? The first thing was wahi, was the divine sacred revelation, was the kitab, the book, the Qur'an al-Kareem, the noble Qur'an. And the second thing was a pure and noble heart, a qalbun salim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, يَوْمَ لَا يَنْفَعُ مَالًا وَلَا إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَى اللَّهُ بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ So this qalbin salim, this pure and untainted heart, it means, uh, just a brief explanation of this ayah, it means that nobody will be successful on the Day of Judgment. Neither his wealth will benefit him, nor his sons will benefit him. It means neither any of his worldly possessions will benefit him, nor will any of his worldly relations benefit him, the only person or the only thing that will benefit him on that day of judgment is a qalbun salim, is a purified heart. So if the entire success of the day of judgment is based on this, and Al-Fatihah said in Quran, hasana, that you have in you or for you in the beloved messenger وسلم, an uswatun hasana, a beautiful and noble example. So if one of the purposes of our life is to have a qalbun salim, a pure and untainted heart, Surely the Prophet must have been the Uswatun Hasana for that Qalbun Salim. He must have been the noble example, the model for that purified heart. So the beloved Messenger brought two things, left behind two legacies. One, a pure revelation, and the second, a pure heart. And this is Allah Ta'ala mentions this in the Quran in a number of places. What we call the maqasid al-bi'tha, or the purposes, the reasons why Al-Fatihah sent the Prophet Muhammad And there are four number. And to recite unto them the verses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was the sole exclusive function of Prophet Muhammad And it passed away with his passing away from this world. But the remaining three remain alive and will remain alive until the Day of Judgment. So what was the second? What does that mean? To purify them, to purify their hearts, 
to teach them that way of tazkiyah, to teach them the ways and methods that they too could come before Allah to teach them the book to do ta'lim of the kitab. This is a very revealing ayah because this shows you the deep uh, legitimacy or authority or the authenticity of scholarship in our deen. Because if you look at the Prophet Muhammad he recited the Qur'an in Arabian. It was an Arabic revelation. Who did he recite it unto? Immediately, the Sahaba, who were people who were masters of the Arabic language. People who used to put up their poems on the Kaaba. People who used to memorize thousands and thousands of verses of poetry. So if simply knowing the Arabic language was enough, then yatlu alayhim ayatihi silaf tilawa or recitation of the verses should have been enough. Why did Allah mention as a separate distinct function yu'allimuhum al-kitab or that he would teach them the book? Why does this book need ta'lim and ta'allum even for the Arabs? It needs to be explained, it needs to be understood. And this is a tradition that has continued throughout the Muslims, throughout our history. In fact, if you look at all the famous tafasir, the famous commentaries of the Qur'an by Ar-Razi, Al-Qurtubi, uh, by Ibn Kathir, Alama Alusi, all of these huge, huge, multi-volume books in Arabic, who are they written for? Were they written for non-Arabs? Were they written to explain to the person who didn't know Arabic how to understand Qur'an? No. In fact, the Arabic in some of these tafasir, if any of you have read them, you'll see it's more difficult than even the Arabic in the Qur'an. So those huge volumes of tafsir were written for people who knew the Arabic language. Even the Arab ulama, the ulama who were masters of Arabic language, they used to consult these tafasir, these books of commentary on the Qur'an. So how is it that today we think that it is enough for us to simply pick up a translation of the Qur'an? I don't think I'm trying to keep anyone from Qur'an. I'm actually inviting you to study Qur'an deeply and to study the tafsir and to study the deep meanings of the Qur'an. So one function, يُعَلِّمُهُمُ kitab, And finally, hikmah. So four things. Tilawa of ayat, to recite unto them the verses. Number two, tazkiyah, وَيُزَكِّهِمْ to purify them. Number three, وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ kitab, And to teach and expound for them the book. hikmata, And to teach them the wisdom. So the Mufassirin write that hikmah here in this ayah, it means the wisdom, the knowledge, and how to live a collective life. Mu'amalat, mu'ashalat, how to live as a family, as a community, as a society, as a polity, as a state, as an ummah. All the things that pertain to collective life are sum- summarized in this one word here, hikmah. As Prophet taught us, not just how individuals, how we should please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but how we should live as communities, and established a deen on this earth in a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there were two things that we mentioned. First, Prophet left this kitab, this wahi. And second, he brought that pure and untainted heart, that qalb. And there are two sciences or two disciplines that deal with each of these things. The science through which you will learn about the wahi, the kitab, is called ilm, is called sacred knowledge. And the signs through which you will be able to develop that purified heart, that qalb, is called tazkiyah, or purification and disciplining of the soul and the heart. So in our morning sessions, we will talk about the first, ilm. And in our evening sessions, we will talk about the second, tazkiyah. Unfortunately, today in the ummah, we have so much decline in the ummah, be it as individuals or as a collective, precisely because we have not 
drank from these two wells precisely because we have not lived up to the legacy of these two things. In other words, we are neither people of ilm nor are we people of tizkiyah. So the evening sessions will explore why we have lost that tizkiyah. And here today, starting today, I want to explore why have we lost that ilm. So there are two reasons that we have lost this ilm. And know that our very iman actually depends on these two things. That person who does not have knowledge and that person who does not purify himself, he is endangering his very faith, his very iman. So there are two reasons why we have lost this ilm, this knowledge in this day and age. The first is we have lost the qadr, the value, or the ahmiya, the importance of sacred knowledge. We don't have the value of this ilm in our hearts. As a society, as the Muslim community, we don't have a value of this knowledge. If you look, and just to understand how little we value it, you can just look in contrast how much we value the knowledge of this world. A person will get or study in school for 12 years. Then he'll go to college for four years. That's 16 years. Then these days students want to go to graduate school or go to medical school. That can be anywhere from another two to four years. A person can spend from 16 to 20 to 22 or do a PhD. Spend 24 years of his life pursuing secular knowledge. I'm not saying there's anything bad with pursuing secular knowledge. Right? I myself studied in university, so I would be hypocritical to tell you that. But if we want to claim that we're people of balance, Many of us like to claim that you should join both the deen and the dunya. Well, just take this one thing as an example, ilm. But how have you balanced your knowledge of the dunya and how have you balanced your knowledge of the deen? So much so today that there are people who have medical doctors, people who have PhDs, that if their own father was to die, they don't even have the knowledge of what to do. They don't know the sunnah way of making ghusl of the corpse of their father. If you ask them to lead janazah, they'll say, I don't know how to lead the janazah prayer. Despite all their education, they don't even know the simple rulings, ihkamat, of death. And each and every one of us is going to die. If you ask them, how should you divide the estate of your father according to the sharia, in a way that is pleasing to Allah, they'll say they don't know. If you ask them which way their father should be laid in the grave, they don't know. If you ask them that there is a corpse of your father, you yourself go and get the cloth from the market and put the kafan, put the burial shroud on the father, they say, I don't know how big the cloth is supposed to be. I don't know which way it is supposed to be rent. So with so much education, they don't even know, they cannot even perform the khidma or the service for their father when the father passes away. It shows you that they have no value, no importance for the sacred knowledge. They couldn't be bothered with this type of knowledge. So much so that our sheikh once told us a story of one person who was sitting in his company, got a call on the cell phone, and he just stepped away for a bit and spoke on the phone for five, ten minutes and then he came back. And he looked slightly disturbed so someone asked him later, who was that on the phone? And he said, oh, I got a phone call and my father was in the hospital, he had been sick. So I got a phone call that he passed away. So I quickly then made a call to the coroner, the local funeral partner, told them which hospital my father is in. I asked them to pick my father up themselves, take him to the funeral parlor and do with him whatever these uh, non-Muslims do and just to arrange for his burial. This is a state of Muslims when you lack your knowledge. And not only do we lack these knowledge of these legal rules of death, we also lack the knowledge of the importance of death. What a transition it means. How much a father needs his son at that moment. And how lacking of knowledge or awareness or feeling in our hearts that we are. We have lost the value of knowledge in this day and age. 
If you ask a young man who's studying in college, what do you plan to do when you graduate? Or if you ask a man who's studying, even he's still he's in his first year of college, he'll say, well, I plan to do my second year. I plan to do my third year. I plan to do my fourth year. I plan to graduate early. After that, I will study abroad. After that, I will go to graduate school. After that, I'm going to work. I'll start as an apprentice engineer. Then I'll become a regular engineer. Then I'll become a senior engineer. And if you ask him, what does he have planned for his dean? He'll look at you blankly. And in fact, if you tell him that, well, how about if I was to tell you that you'll never get past the first year of college? You will do first year of college this year. Next year, you will still be stuck in first year. Five years from now, you will still be stuck in first year. He'll look at you like you're crazy. But how dare you suggest that I not progress in my dunya? How dare you suggest that I not increase in my knowledge of this world? Well, if you told that same young man that, well, if today you only know ten surahs of the Qur'an, the meaning of ten surahs, one year from now you'll only know the meaning of ten surahs. No problem. Five years from now you will still only know the meaning of ten surahs. No problem. If today you only know two or three sunnah du'as, one year from now you will still only know those two or three sunnah du'as. No problem. That same shock will not be there. In fact, if you, any one of us can just look and reflect at ourselves for a few minutes, where were we three years ago in terms of our knowledge of this world? How much progress have we made? How much effort did we put into that? And where were we three years ago or just one Ramadan ago? Or for those of you who sit every year in Itikaf, where were you last year in Itikaf in terms of your knowledge of Allah and your knowledge of the Book of Allah and your knowledge of the Sunnah of the Beloved Messenger of Allah and where are you today in terms of your knowledge? And where are you in terms of your dunya? Or even those of us who aren't students, think of how much progress you made in your business, or your work, or your career, or your job, or what a better car you got, or a better house you got, or a new fridge you got, whatever type of progress you made in your life. Just compare that progress that you made in the dunya, not saying it's fully jayas, but just look at that progress that you made, and now look at the progress you made in your deen. Whether it's in your ilm, whether it's in your amal, whether it's in your taqwa, whether it's in your ikhlas, do you see? Can you now truly say that I joined the deen and dunya? That I'm equally progressing in the deen and dunya? So this is a false cry with which actually shaitan and nafs have deceived us. That they've involved us so much in the dunya and we do a little bit in the deen and then we say that, oh no, no, but I'm joining both the deen and dunya. But anybody who is to pause and fairly with a cool heart rationally reflect on his life, he will find that the amount of progress I had in my past is much more in the dunya. Now look at the future. What are your hopes and aspirations? Look at the plans you make in your PDA and your planners and your computers. Look at all the things you talk about with your parents, your wives, your children. What have you planned for yourself in the next year? How many things do you hope to do, hope to attain, hope to acquire in this upcoming year? Now ask yourself, keep that on one side, and ask yourself how much have you actually planned to increase in your deen? How many of us have thought that I'm going to double my knowledge of Quran in the next year? I'm going to double the uh, consistency of my salah or the concentration of my salah in the next year. And again, any one of us who are calmly and rationally honest with ourselves will say, well, I have so much more planned for my dunya in the next year. I haven't even planned that much. I didn't even have the intention to do that much in my deen. So, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ can work for you and it can work against you. The Prophet said that, verily know that إِنَّمَا كَلَمَةُ الْحَسَرِ that actions are only, only according to your intention. If we don't intend to change, if we don't intend to progress in our deen, then what makes us think something somehow that's going to happen? What makes us think that that action is going to come about without any intention to do so? 
So part of this month of Ramadan is about assessing yourself and about assessing your knowledge and thinking where do I lie on this graph of knowledge of Allah SWT and His deen and what steps can I take to increase in my knowledge or what, how hard has my heart become that I don't even have a yearning or desire for this knowledge or how heedless, how ghafil, how unaware my life has become that I'm living a life of ignorance, of jahiliyyah I'm living a life of darkness and I don't even know, I'm not even searching for the light at the end of the road. So it means that we must increase in our knowledge. So the first thing that has kept us from being people of knowledge is simply that we don't have the qadr, we don't have the value and the importance of knowledge. And that's because we're creatures of comfort. We only do those things that we see the benefit in front of us. Now you see the benefit of going to school because you get a job, you get a salary. You see the benefit of getting up and going to your store or job every day because you see your hourly wages, you see your paycheck. You might not practically see the benefit of acquiring the knowledge of this thing. It's because we've blinded ourselves to that. Otherwise, I guarantee you, my friends, if any one of us was to learn anything, even the smallest thing of the deen and put it into practice, you would feel that spiritual benefit. You would feel that you are closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the mercy of Allah that He sent this book, He sent this deen, he filled this deen up with so much knowledge precisely because he wanted you to know him. He revealed so much in Quran and Sunnah because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know that about that way of life that is pleasing to him. And in fact, to acquire ilm, what I'm saying is to try to go and acquire knowledge, this isn't something that's difficult for us. This is another rahmah and mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has put it in our fitrah he has put it in our deep, inherent human nature that we are people who are inquisitive. We are curious by nature. We want knowledge. Look, how many of us read the paper every day? It means you want knowledge. Every time we get it, we want to know what's happening in the world. We want to know what's happening in our communities. We talk to our spouses, our children, our parents. We want to know what's happening in our family. We want to know what's happening in their lives, in their jobs, in their schools, in their careers. Even when you're walking down the street, and all of a sudden you see a crowd of 10 people they're all looking up. You want to know what they're looking at, you'll also look up. If you see that there's some accident on the side of the road, you slow down, you want to know why everybody slowed, you'll look. There's so much a desire for knowledge inside of us. Allah put that there, maybe also to learn about this world and to learn about your families. But the real reason Allah put that seed of knowledge in your heart was that you would want to know about Him that you would want to know about Allah, that you would want use that thirst for knowledge, you would quench that thirst by acquiring the knowledge of this deen. So it means now we have shown how important knowledge is. We've shown that how it is only natural for you to be a person, or for us to be people who acquire and attain and search for knowledge. So all that's left is actually going out and spending that time and acquiring that knowledge. Now what happens is sometimes, and this is where we get into the second flaw, what happens is sometimes that a young man in college all of a sudden becomes religious. Or a middle-aged Muslim, maybe he migrated to this country. And when he left his Muslim country and he came to this country, he realized the value of his deen. Because as they say in sociology and anthropology, the self realizes himself when he's come face to face with the other. We come to value our deen more when we live in a surrounding that doesn't have the deen in it. So either way, whether it's a young man or a middle-aged man or an older man, all of a sudden he starts to become more religious, he starts to become attracted towards the deen. And then what happens is that he forgets that he has no knowledge. And he tries to do things as if he knows them. I'll give you an example. Imagine if there's some fellow who for some reason or another he never went to school. 
He's illiterate. And there are many people like that in the world. In fact, there are many people like that in the Muslim world. He can't read, can't write, can literally not tell you three plus three. Has had no schooling, has no literacy, no education. All of a sudden, when he's 25 years old, he thinks that, oh, knowledge is such an important thing. Science, math, all these things. I remain distant from them for 20 years of my life. Now I have to get connected. That's a very good thing. But if all of a sudden that 25-year-old insisted that he be made a teacher in a school or a college, or he be treated like a person of knowledge, we'd say, no, you might be 25 years old, you might be 45 years old, but you have no schooling, so you're actually first grade level in your schooling. So you have to go back, you have to start at the basics, and you have to gradually teach yourself. You're going to have to learn how to read. You're going to have to learn basic math. Just like that for the religious Muslim who had no religious knowledge, no matter how sincere we might be in our need to become close to Allah, but we also must be honest with ourselves that no matter how old they are, we got to a late start. And if we don't have that knowledge, we should view ourselves just like that man would do. You know, and I was in South Africa recently, and there's a story in South Africa that they made education free uh, for all of the people. Before there was a time when there was something they called apartheid. And some of the African population was not allowed to attend schools. So when they made education free, a story came there in the papers and somebody told me that a 70-year-old man showed up in elementary school. It's a true story. He was an African and he had never had access to schooling because especially in his time when he was a kid, things were even worse. So he showed up at the school and they said, well, what are you doing? And he said that, well, you passed a law that education is open and free to all races and the members of all races so I never had an opportunity to go to school. I've come here. Please admit me in your first grade. Now, obviously, they didn't admit him in first grade because of the wide age disparity, right? And the teacher would have been highly uncomfortable. But it showed you, look at the sincerity of that person. He knew he had a late start. He got the value, and then he had the opportunity to pursue this type of knowledge. And he went to present himself at the level he was at. So just like that, those of us who become religious later on in life, we should present ourselves in front of teachers as if we're just a kindergarten or first grade level. And then they will take you very quickly to first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, and you will learn and begin to learn the deen. The second thing that keeps us from being, being people of knowledge, so the first is that we do not have qadr, we do not have value for knowledge. The second thing is that we do not have qadr of scholarship. We do not value the people who have knowledge. And this is why I resented the eye that I mentioned in the beginning of this talk. That Allah raises from amongst you the people of Iman, the people of belief, and the people who Allah has bestowed upon them ilm. Right? Utul ilm means that they have bestowed, or knowledge has been bestowed upon them, obviously by Allah, that they are levels. So this isn't something that I'm trying to tell you. This is something that Quran, Allah himself has said that there is a hierarchy of knowledge in our deen. So there's no clergy in Islam, there's no priesthood in Islam, but just like everything else in life, there's a hierarchy of knowledge. And you must trust and rely and depend upon qualified scholarship. Another place Allah said in Quran, Hal If you have any doubts, then ask, that can those people who don't know, can they be equal to the people who know? So second thing, first hierarchy of knowledge. Second, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself is saying in the Quran, there is a disparity, a difference. Never can they be equal, those people who don't have ilm and those people who have ilm. 
They might be equal in their taqwa, they might be equal in their ibadah, but at the very least, and, and that's a whole separate issue what the tafsir of this ayah is, but at the very least, they're not equal in their ilm. That there's some fadila, some uh, uh, superiority, or some virtue to those people who have knowledge. What could those virtues be? Well, Allah SWT himself in Quran mentioned one of those virtues. إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ إِبَادِهِ الْأُلَمَاءِ That know that verily, إِنَّمَا again, قَلِمَةُ الْحَسَرِ uh, Hasr means to exclusively explain something. When Allah Taala says "Innama" and then He says something, He means that's the only way it can be. So "Innama yaqshallahu min ibadihi ulama" that from the servants of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, the only ones who fear Him are the ulama, are the people who have ilm, the people who have knowledge. It means that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has mentioned the virtues of ilm in Quran to entice us and to invite us to acquire knowledge, and He has mentioned the virtues of the darajat of the people, of the ulama, of the people who have knowledge. So it means we must trust and follow reliable scholars. Again, this is not something that's difficult for us. It's something that you and me do every day, countless number of times, every day in our life. When you go to the doctor, and you tell him your symptoms, and he writes you a prescription and gives you medicine, and do not ask that doctor that proved to me that this prescription will cure me, show me the chemical formula of this medicine, Show me how that chemical formula will get into my body, how it will mesh with the cells, how it will repel the virus or infection that I have. No. You trust his scholarship. Why? Because you know, you see the diploma on the board, on the wall. You know that he has spent his life acquiring knowledge systematically, and it's a knowledge that you don't have, and therefore you must trust him. You trust the doctor. You trust the pharmacy that fills the medicine. You trust the pharmaceutical company that designed the medicine. You trust the U.S. FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, who approved the medicine. So much trust goes every time you take even one drop of cough syrup. When you get into a taxi, if you're traveling in some new place, maybe some of you would fly to New York, my hometown, and you would take a taxi and you give him my address. And you would trust that that taxi driver will take you to my home. You will ask him that before you go, I want you to take a map out. I want you to trace with a pen from the airport to this person's house so I can follow and monitor that you truly take all the right turns. We trust a taxi driver with taking us to the destination of this world, but we do not trust the scholars of this deen to take us and guide us on the Salat al-Mustaqim. So as said in Quran, he commanded us to trust them, وَاتَّبِئْ سَبِيلَ مَنْ أَنَابَ إِلَيَّ You must follow the sabil, the way, the path, the method, man anaba alayya, of those people who have turned unto me. So the hukum here was of ittiba, not of inaba. Allah Ta'ala didn't say himself to us that you also must become a person of inaba. That may come elsewhere in Quran. Uh, inaba means to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to incline yourself towards him, to, rujua, to, to do rujua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the hukum he gave us was of ittiba, what You must become a person of ittiba. And that's what we're not. We're not people of ittiba. We're not people who are willing to submit ourselves to follow the people of knowledge of this deen in whichever field it may be. Whether, whether they're the scholars of Quran, the scholars of Sunnah, the scholars of Fiqh, or the scholars of Tizkiyah, we are not willing to follow them. So think about that person. If he doesn't have the knowledge himself, and he's not willing to follow scholarship, then how can he be successful in his goal? Imagine the sick person who doesn't know how to cure himself, nor does he trust any doctor, any homeopath, any acupuncturist, any herbal medicine, nothing. So how will he expect to be cured? So this is the same condition of us today, is that we neither have the knowledge, 
nor do we trust our scholars. Now, there may be some reasons for that. And one reason is that they're innovators in all of these sciences. They're innovators in Quran. They're innovators in Hadith. They're innovators in Fiqh. They're innovators in Tazkiyah. And each, every day we're going to spend one day in each of these four and mention what the true knowledge is of each of one of these, what true scholarship are, what the signs of true scholarship are, and some of the major innovations that have taken place so we can safeguard ourselves from them. But it doesn't mean, just like there are quacks out there in the medical world, there are doctors getting sued for malpractice. Now, if you open up the paper and find that a doctor was sued for malpractice, does that mean you'll stop going to doctors altogether? No. You'll recognize that there are some doctors who maybe have false credentials, who are not practicing properly. And you will stay away from them, but you will not abandon the field altogether. So unless we return to our scholars, it will be very difficult for us to become people of knowledge. So the foundations of our deen then lie on these four things. Quran, Sunnah, Fiqh, and Tazkiyah. Quran and Sunnah are the foundation, the roots, the asl, the usul. And Fiqh and Tazkiyah are the furu or ancillary sciences or derived sciences that have come from these things. It's like you can imagine that biology, chemistry, and physics are the mothers of all sciences. But from them, so many sciences have been derived. The science of medicine was derived. The science of engineering was derived. So you can look at Fiqh as the science of engineering and Tiskiya as the science of medicine. But these two, just like engineering and medicine, have been derived from biology, chemistry, and physics. Just like that, the science of Fiqh and Tiskiya have been derived from the Quran and Sunnah. And this also will then be explained when we reach those sessions. Now one thing is to have a firm hold, and one thing is to have a firm grasp. One thing is to have a firm hold, and the second thing is to have a firm grasp. To have a firm, and it's a bit of a play on words, to have a firm grasp on any of these four means you actually have to study them formally. To have a firm grasp on Quran. There are at least 17 different sciences, the Mufasrin, right, that you have to master in order to know the Qur'an. Many of them pertain to the Arabic language, Sarf, Nahu, Logha, Balagha. Some of them pertain to uh, Tajweed and Qirat. Some of them pertain to when those ayahs were revealed, the Shatn and the place or the, or the history, the historical context in which they were revealed. Then obviously all the ahadith that pertain to the tafsir of the Qur'an. In order to get a firm grasp of any one of these, you would have to formally study these sciences. Now, all of us may or may not be able to do that. Allah SWT did not demand that we have a firm grasp of all of these sciences. What Allah SWT did demand, what Tabi'i Anaba Ilayya, is that we should have a firm hold on the people of knowledge. That we must have a firm hold on the Qur'an. That our iman, our aqaid of the Qur'an should be correct. That our iman and our aqidah about sunnah, about fiqh and tazkiyah should be correct. So the only way to do that are two things. You can either have a firm grasp, otherwise at least you must have a firm hold. And that's where the real problem is, is Alhamdulillah Allah Ta'ala has still blessed this ummah, even though their numbers are dwindling, their numbers have become fewer and fewer as the end of time approaches, but there are still people and there will always be people until the Day of Judgment who have a firm grasp. They will be the people because Allah Ta'ala has given that hukum in Qur'an. Any time Allah gives us a command in the Qur'an, it is guaranteed that Allah will, will create a way for you to fulfill that command between now and the Day of Judgment. Because you are muqallaf, you are morally responsible for following all these rulings. So there's no way Allah commanded us to do something in Quran and now we can say we live in a place or a time where there's no ability to do that. 
it might become a bit more difficult. You might have to make some sacrifice of your time. You might have to journey sometimes. You might have to change something in your schedule. But for that person who wants it, he will be able to follow each and every command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there are always going to be people who have a firm grasp. The question before you and me today and for the rest of our lives is do we want to be people who have a firm hold? Do we want to grab firmly to this hubble, to this rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he has thrown to us this knowledge of this thing? In fact, if you look at just one thing as a small example, and I'll end on this, is how much Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to have knowledge is that look at the knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us just about himself, about his that. This is one of the most incredible rahmas, mercies, bounties of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he revealed things about himself to us in the Qur'an. For example, he revealed these things called the Asma'ul Husna or the beautiful names, which in the Sahih and Hadith and Sahih Bukhari, the Prophet mentioned that they are Tas'ata wa Tis'in, that they are 99. Actually, the truth is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has limitless names, limitless attributes, but 99 of them were mentioned to us, or the names of 99 of those attributes, sifat, were mentioned to us in Quran and Hadith. Now think that Allah wants you to know him so much that he revealed, he described himself, look at it that way. He described himself or he chose to share himself with you in 99 different ways. How many of us even know 10 of those 99 names? And of those 10, how many of us could explain what they mean? Who can tell me what's the difference between Al-Ghafur and Al-Ghafar? Who can tell me what Al-Hanim means? So look at the tragedy. This is what it means, lack of knowledge. Look at the darkness now that lack of knowledge will put you in. If nothing else, if you're unaware of the names of Allah, of the sifat, attributes of Allah, you are in darkness, you are ignorant about the nature of your kind and benevolent Lord. And in contrast, Allah is engaging you so dynamically. He's sharing with you his names. He wants you to know him and you couldn't be bothered. Right? That's really what it is. You know, it sounds terrible. It sounds ugly when we say it with our tongue. But what it means, this is, I'm going to give voice to our kefiat, our hal. I'm going to give voice to our condition. Our condition is this, that, oh Allah, truly you reveal to us so much about yourself. You reveal to us so many of your qualities and your characteristics and attributes. But oh Allah, I couldn't be bothered. I couldn't care less. I couldn't be bothered to even spend five minutes a day to learn about you. I couldn't care less about you. So think, my friends, that if we choose not to remember the name of Allah in this world, if we choose not to honor the names of Allah in this world, what makes us think Allah will honor our names on the Day of Judgment? What makes us think Allah will write our names on the Day of Judgment amongst the people who have been saved? What hope is there for us when we have been so cruel to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? وَمَا قَنْدَرَ اللَّهَ حَقَّ قَنْدْرِهِ Allah had to say himself in Quran that you do not do qadr, that they do not value, they do not honor Allah as he deserved to be honored. But even then, Allah then said, He's still Rabbi Kareem, Ya ayyuhal insan, ma gharraka bi Rabbi Kareem. What has deceived you, O humanity? What has fooled you from learning about your Lord? What has kept you from learning about his beautiful names? What has kept you from drawing yourself towards him or grabbing onto those 99 ropes that he has thrown to you? means that there's something deeply wrong with us that we must revive our hearts, we must become people of knowledge. So one thing we can do, if people are willing, in these next seven or eight days, those of, us, uh, those of you who are sitting in Itikaf, is that you can try, at the very least, even if you don't memorize, at the very least pick up, and you might have a book like that or somebody can get them for you, is his books that people have collected and written just the 99 names of Allah. 
Just read the names. Don't look at all the different du'as and things you have to do with them. Just read them once. At very least, I'm not even saying memorize them all. I'm not saying trying to understand them all, although that would be great if you could set up a system for yourself. You could memorize three or four a day, or you probably have to memorize, I guess, 10 or 11 a day. But at the very least, read all of them once. Think about that. If you haven't even done that, if you haven't even read them once, even without understanding, that's how little we could be bothered. Even the teacher in the classroom, at least she reads the names of her students the first time she comes into class. We couldn't even be bothered to let our eyes look upon those names. So our eyes are mahroom, our, our, our eyes are devoid, our hearts are devoid. Everything about us is devoid. How can we become so distant from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And inshallah, we will try also sometime in some of these talks to add or incorporate the meanings of some of these names so that we too may become people who have knowledge. So if you just look at this one small sampling, the 99 names of Allah is the one small drop in the ocean of knowledge that Allah has given us. Imagine how much that drop would quench your thirst for Allah, how much that drop would draw you close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imagine if we became people who not just learned those names, but learned so many more things that Allah has mentioned in the Quran, that we became people and we can make that near today. And we should all make this near today that, oh Allah, we want to be people who know and understand the meaning of every ayah of the Qur'an and every single thing in the sunnah, everything about the shiri and everything about the deen. Ya Allah, you are Arhamul Rahimin. You are the one who revealed the deen. Ya Allah, make us people of reflection, people of tafakkur, people of uh, insight, people of firasa, people of understanding, people of tafakkur. Make us also understand the deen. Wa akhir da'wana an alhamdulillah rabbil alameen. It was a Sheikh Hussein Abdul Sattar, now Bakatam, told me that it was a practice. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, how he explained to me was that he would leave about 10 15 minutes after the Fajr talk for questions. So I've ended 10 minutes before the Ishraq time to give you time for questions. You should know, uh, Alhamdulillah, I spoke to him before he, uh, when he was in the airport in New York. And uh, I asked him and I requested him, and he promised that he would make dua for this program, for all of the people sitting here in Itikaf. So if he might not be here in body, he is uh, here in spirit. Strange, Allah Fadal in this teen has revealed many strange ahkam. That if you look upon them deeply, you uh, there's so many, uh, what we call nukat, there's so many subtleties, there's so many secrets in these things. One hukam is that if a person does not have water to make wudu, or if he does not have kudrat al-almah, if he does not have the ability to use water, Water was something that is so pure, something that is so clear, something that is so cool. If he doesn't have the ability or the access to use water, then he can still purify himself by way of tiyamam, by using the earth or the soil, or something even like the dust on a brick, or the dust on some other earth-type material. So you should look uh, that because uh, Sheikh Hussein is not here, he was like your wudu. Uh, unfortunately, because water is unavailable this year in Itikaf, so he sent me in his place, so I'm like your tiyamum, but this is the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that the same tahara, especially in our Hanafi fiqh, uh, maybe we'll touch on this topic when we do fiqh, uh, that in the Hanafi school of fiqh, more so than any other, tiyamum is kamil. It is a kamil muttatahir, is a kamil ala tahara, is a perfect and complete way of purification. It is not in any way less uh, than water. So this means, and this is one of the great things about our deen in general, uh, that Allah has made an asal, but often he has made a na'ib for that asal, 
a deputy for that asal. Like there is salah. There is ada that is the asal. If for some reason you overslept, right? Allah Ta'ala gave you the na'ib uh, or the replacement or the substitute for that, which is qala, that you should make up that missed prayer. So inshallah, may Allah Ta'ala give us the ability and ikhlas with his du'as, with his ikhlas that we continue this tradition. And uh, well, I will pause for questions inshallah. You mentioned um, concerning holding a firm grasp and a firm hold. And um, an example you gave is uh, having a firm grasp on the Quran. And uh, for example, if you uh, met the, um, the Arabic <coughs> Quran, such as I am. And uh, what would be an example of um, a firm hold on the Quran? Would it be just to, to read the Quran? Okay, so a firm hold on the Quran. Uh, for those who are unable to get or have yet been unable to get a firm grasp, a firm hold on the Qur'an would be to read the Qur'an on a regular basis every day with tafsir, from a reliable tafsir from a scholar, and to sit in the company of scholars and ask them to teach you the Qur'an. Or if you are unable to sit with them on a daily basis, at least have them guide your study, right? Because there's no real 100% self-study in Islam. Our deen is a deen of rewaya, not a deen of diraya. Right? Diraya means akal. I guess that's one thing I left out, is that you have to, this deen, because the ilm comes from wahi. So wahi, revelation transcends the akal. So you either have to supersede your intellect when you approach this knowledge, or you have to leave your intellect behind. Because there are going to be some things that you're only going to be able to understand with your heart, and there are going to be some things that you're not going to understand that you're going to have to submit to. And that's why this is the name of our deen, Islam, it means to submit. It doesn't mean to read, study, reflect, understand, agree with, then believe. No. It means to submit from the very beginning. So when you present yourself to the scholars of Qur'an, right, to have a firm hold of the Qur'an means to have a firm hold of the Ahli Qur'an or the firm hold of the people who have a firm grasp of Qur'an. I'll give you an example just from daily life, right, and just for myself. For example, I don't know the first thing about medicine or about ophthalmology, but I've had the same eye doctor for what's it, 27 years now. I got glasses when I was five years old, right? So I've had the same eye doctor for 25 years. I have a firm hold on that man, right? I do not have a firm grasp on the science of medicine and ophthalmology, but I have a firm hold on a person, ahli fun, on a person who has a master of that discipline. So you should also, and this is an example, look, whenever we move to a town, right, if a person moves from New York to Chicago, one of the things amongst the many things they do when they come to Chicago is they will find doctors. If they have any type of illness, they will find a cardiologist for themselves. They will find a general physician. In my case, they would find an eye doctor. They would find a dentist. That's one of the first things they will do. That doesn't mean they start going to them, but they will make sure they have a firm hold, they have some contact, they have some relationship, some nispa, some connection with the people of medicine. Just like that, whenever you're living in a city or in a place, you should have a firm hold of the people of scholarship. You should know that if I question about Quran, who is one of those Ahl Quran that I can go to if I need help? If I have a question about sunnah, who is a person I can go to to turn for help? If I have a problem in my tazkiyah, I'm unable to control my anger. I'm experiencing lust. I can't control my gaze. Who can I go who can guide me and who can give me help? That ask the people of dhikr, and this has many meanings here, remembrance of Quran, of nasiha, of hikmah. In other words, ask the people who know better than you, in kuntum la ta'lamun. What is the sifat of those people if you don't know? So if we uh, uh, honestly acknowledge ourselves, we are those people. We are those people in Kuntum La Ta'lamun. We are the people who don't know. 
that Allah has told us the way out. Fas'alu that you must ask. You must be inquisitive. How you ask unless you're connected, unless you have a firm hold, a firm relationship with the people who can answer your questions. Okay, you can you can do that in your audit. <laughs> Until from now on, I'll repeat the question. What is the fastest way to progress in studying the deen? I, I don't know if I could tell you for sure what was the single fastest way, but certainly, I mean, the thing is that will enable you to reach that goal. One is your sincerity, is your ikhlas, and one is your talab, is your true yearning and desire. Because it's not possible that a person, anything in the deen, whether it's acquiring ilm or anything else, it's not possible that a person have a sincere desire, a mukhlis talab, yearning in his heart, to get anything in the deen, Allah won't give it to him. It's not possible. Allah Ta'ala will definitely grant you. So if there's some difficulty, some shortcoming, some deficiency, some obstacle, try to use the asbab, try to do whatever you can to overcome it. And if you still can't overcome it, then look inwards. Think that there must be something that Allah Ta'ala is not giving me kubuliyah. Allah is not accepting me. Allah Ta'ala does not wish me. Uh, Allah Ta'ala has not deemed me yet worthy. I must do istighfar. I must do tawbah. I must repent to Allah. I must beg of Allah, Allah Ta'ala, make me sincere in my desire, make me sincere in my intention, open up the paths and ways for me to study. And then other than that, then the, obviously the most beneficial way would be to attach yourself to the people of learning, the people who of, of teaching, the people who are willing and able to guide you on this path. And I think that's uh, you know, a real thing, for example, uh, Brother Salman asked about Quran. You know, once you sit, and, and you know, this is the thing I experienced, I'd say I had to travel to Pakistan to experience this, once you sit before somebody who really knows the Qur'an and you listen to them explain even a few verses or one raku'ah, your life will change because you realize that this is not something I could have ever figured out on my own in translation. And you'll also see the effect of that teaching on your heart. You'll find yourself always remembering those ayahs. You'll never forget those ayahs. If they're ever recited in the Salah, they're recited in the Taraweeh, the whole lesson of that teacher will come back to your head. You'll find that you're actually practicing the knowledge that was contained in those eyes, you're doing whatever you were told, right? So there's also a barakah in taking it from a sahib amal, from a person who does amal. Because when a person practices his knowledge, then there's a ta'thir and effect of his words on the hearts of people. So you must take knowledge from the people, not just to have knowledge, and this is very important, I should have mentioned this, you must take knowledge from people, it's not simply who have knowledge, but who are honest practitioners of that knowledge, are pious bearers of that knowledge. Because that way, not only will the knowledge be transferred to you, but the amal, the ikhlas, the barakah, the qurb, the closeness to Allah that comes attached with that knowledge, that will be transferred to you as well. No, it's, it's, it's not practically possible for most people. I mean, most people work an eight-hour job, right? And then they have to sleep eight hours, that's 16 hours. So if we said they had to give equal amount of time to the deen, that would be another eight hours, so that would be 24 gone. So no food, no commuting, no family, right? So practically speaking, actually, uh, you know, for a person who has a job, uh, whether his job is a, being a student or his job is a business or he works in an office, practically speaking, it would be uh, unrealistic for me to say you have to spend exactly the equal amount of time. The point is just to realize, to have an essas or a feeling or to be aware of this, to be sensitive to the fact that we're not spending any time, right? Or for the few of us who might be spending a bit of time that we're not spending enough time. 
And the only way you can judge if you're spending enough time is just by looking at your progress, right? You tell me how, how fast, let's say, let's take those nine, nine names. How fast should a person know that? Can you wait another year to know that? If you think you can wait another year, then maybe he just needs one minute a day. If you think that those type of things can't wait a year, that means you have to put in more time for them. So again, it all has to do with the value and the color, the ahmiya you give to this knowledge. The more value a person gives to it, the more time they're going to spend on it, right? And again, you just have to look at people around the world, how much they value things. You know, there'll be a person who works a full-time job. He values the physical condition of his body. So for three times a week, he goes to a fitness room, a gym, and spends two hours, right, door-to-door, by the time he goes, changes, warms up, lifts weights, showers in front of everybody, and dresses in front of everybody, and comes home, right? What do they do? They, they, they lose even their high offer for the sake of their fitness, right? So if a person, if, so there are examples like you, your own colleagues at work, your fellow students are doing things with their lives. They're not just studying. So just look at them. At the very least, that would be the minimum you should spend. So look at the people around you. This is another thing of the Sharia. If you look at the meher, meher misal, right? Allah said that one way you should give the meher for a woman, right? If you're about to marry a woman, Allah Ta'ala make all of you married at least once, inshallah. So, uh, when you uh, get married, you can give the woman a meher based on her misal. In other words, how much did her sister get or women of her family or her societal background or socioeconomic background. Comparatively speaking, how much did that woman get? So this is another hukum. These things of the Sharia, when you study fiqh properly, you see these are signs of Allah It means you should also look. That's your whole life is missile now. Look at, if you're a student, look at your fellow students. This guy is spending three, four hours a week in, in the fitness club. This guy's on the football team. This other guy's on the fraternity. Look how much time they're spending doing their extracurricular activities. You should spend at least that much time in your day. If you're a colleague, look at, do you have some Christian some religious person in your workplace, maybe see how much he goes to church, how much Bible study he does. Compare yourself. Because Allah Ta'ala can compare you to them. You know, this nothing thing our Mashaik teaches is that Allah Ta'ala on the Day of Judgment will do what we call relative marking. He will grade you based on the people of your society. So you're not required to bring the taqwa of uh, Hassan al-Basra Allah on the Day of Judgment. You were born in this time. Nobody's saying that you have to spend the entire night praying nafil, that you have to finish the Quran every three days. But you have to bring what other people in your time are bringing. So what if Allah asks you on the Day of Judgment? And there are people humble in the Summa who do read the Qur'an every day, who are trying to acquire knowledge every day, who are spending that 6 to 8 to 10 to 15 hours a week uh, for uh, improving themselves in their deen, whether it be in knowledge or tazkiyah or da'wah or something else. So Allah Ta'ala will raise you amongst and, and, and examine you amongst your peers. So just look at your peers. Look how much your peers are doing other things in life other than their jobs and studies and think that you should do at least as much as they're doing for your team. People who went to gardening, right? They, they spend so much time doing their garden, home improvement, home depot. They're going there. They're fixing up their house all the time. They're a billion, you just have to look honestly around you. You'll see people are doing so many things in this world. What a lie it is that shaitan and nafs has told us that nobody does anything except their job. Look at the society around you. This whole consumer society, consumer culture is running precisely because people do a billion things other than their job. They do so many things on the nights, on the weekends, and the early mornings. So why are we fooling ourselves that, oh, we can't do anything except our jobs? So yes, Allah Ta'ala wants you to spend the time in your job, but spend your free time for his sake, for the sake of the deen. Otherwise, what's to save us from being amongst the khasirin on the Day of Judgment? 
What reply will you give to Allah on that day? What excuse will you give to Allah on that day? What if Allah Ta'ala asks you directly that look at this, this unbeliever for the sake of his own little philosophy, his vegetarian philosophy, his Buddhist philosophy. He did so many things and you had my deen. I raised you amongst the best khayrul ummah, the best ummah. I made you the ummah of the last Nabi. The Anbiya used to make dua. It comes in hadith that the Anbiya, the prophets of previous ummahs, used to make dua to Allah, that Allah Ta'ala, we wish we were also raised amongst the ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You were given that honor that the prophets used to make dua for and you didn't take other of it? You didn't value it? The normal questions I want to very briefly in 5-10 minutes mention a few guidelines from the people I need to call. I didn't do this last night because I thought there may have been other people. Uh, for the people saying in itikaf, very, very briefly, inshallah. Just like there is an ada and a qaza, right? That if you do something on time in its appropriate manner, it's considered ada. But if for some reason you missed it, you missed that opportunity, you missed that moment, you missed that time, there is a qaza. So imagine that if one of us were to find out, well, imagine that. Uh, each one of you imagine that you have 10,000 salah that you have to make up. You have 10,000 outstanding salah due upon you. Maybe you didn't pray for 20 years of your life, right? And imagine then somehow somebody told you, maybe a doctor told you that you have cancer, you're going to die in a week. How would you spend that week? You would look at that week as gaza for all the life that you wasted. You have to look at this week also in the same manner. Think that these, and now it's what, six or seven days are left. Today is the 22nd fast, right? Six or seven or maybe eight days are left. So think that these six and seven days you have to make up for all the time you wasted in the past year. But these six, seven days wouldn't be enough for it. If we count up all the hours, if we were to total up all the hours we wasted, they would far surpass six or seven days. So you have to look at this time, not as extra time, not as bonus time that you gave to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as makeup time. Well Asr inna insana lafi khusr. They say, Oh Allah, verily you swore by time, you swore by the age, you swore by the zamana. That insan, that humanity is in khusr, is an absolute state of a state of absolute loss. Allah I am trying to make up some of those losses in these seven days. So you should be frantic. You should live these seven days really like a crazed person, like a majnoon. Ka'annaka majnoonun. As if you are lost, intoxicated, crazy, mad in pursuing the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like a runaway slave. Right? They tell a story of a runaway slave that when the slave ran away and then the master sent somebody to fetch him and then the slave was caught. When the slave was caught, now all the way while he was coming back, he was thinking throughout that entire journey, how can I now please my master? What can I do to please my master? What will I say to please my master? So look that we are like the runaway servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and out of his rahmah, out of his mercy, it is so much better that he put us in his akhaz in this world than in the next, that he grabbed us into this masjid, we are like his runaway slaves and now we have to spend these six, seven days thinking how we can make up for all the things that we did, how we can reconcile ourselves with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So each and every moment must be spent. So the first thing is you must kill all the things that you normally do. Don't talk to one another about trivial things. I know it's very tempting. Some of you are young guys. You're used to hanging out into the wee hours of the night. You're meeting one another maybe some of you after months. Some of you have come from different states. 
very tempting to sit and talk to one another. Just save that for the end. Think that how many days and how many nights have we spent on the phone, on email, on chatting, uh, in person, talking to people, catching up. Don't spend these six, seven days catching up with one another. Spend these six, seven days catching up with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Spend these six, seven days chatting and getting close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So try not to talk to one another. This is going to be the big, and it's really going to be a few things that you have to control as you're sleeping and you're talking and a few things like that. So number one, control your talking. Try not to talk to one another except if you need to. And if you need to, and this goes for myself also, and I might not have also been doing this as well, if we need to talk to one another, we need to talk about something about the deen, then we should sit and try to move in a place and talk in hushed tones where it won't disturb the ibadah or the concentration of other people. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about the worldly affairs, of the, even if of the Muslims, right now, because you have your whole life to do that, and you've been doing that your whole life. This is a halwa. This is a period of halwa of seclusion, of cutting yourself off from the world and coming face to face with yourself, with your inner self, with your soul, with your own reality. So how are you going to do that when you're still worried about what's going on with the Muslims all over the world? Don't lose that worry. Remember them in your du'a. But there's no need to discuss and debate and dissect and analyze the world situation. So don't discuss anything like that, even if you may think it might be Islamic. Because for these moments, you're in khalwa. You've isolated yourself from these things to fix yourself, to make yourself a better brick in this building of Islam. Because a building is only as good as each and every individual brick that is in it. So think that your great contribution to the Ummah right now for the next six, seven days will be to fix this one brick. And maybe if you fix this brick in these few days, then you can go and think about how to fix the other bricks in the other parts of the structure. So don't talk to one another about trivial matters, about worldly matters. Don't chat one another up. Spend as much of your time as you can do in ibadah. If you get tired of ibadah, and this is going to happen if you try to do it, because it's, we're, not, we're not people who do ibadah for 18 hours a day. This wasn't our norm. It's not our habit. So then simply sit quietly. Learn to be a person who can sit. Learn to be a person who can be quiet. Learn to taste the pleasures of silence. Sit quietly and reflect upon your Lord from the depth of your heart. Do anything but don't talk to one another. Don't give in to your desires. The first thing is to control your speech. The second thing is to control your sleep, that we should try to sleep early. Uh, inshallah, we should have, uh, you know, people should try to sleep at 12. Uh, everybody should be in their bed at 12. Whatever ibadah you wanted to do from 12 to 12.30, and we'll I mean, make exception for those of you who are, mashallah, so good in your ibadah, you know you can stay up all night and all day. But unless you know that, go to sleep at a proper time, go to sleep at 12, and you can wake up at 2.30 or 3, wake up earlier and do that ibadah earlier in the morning. And spend some time, give your body a try, sleep during the day if you want to. You can take a nap after ishraq if you want. You can take, you can sleep all the way from ishraq to zohar if you want. I'm just going to be, that's what happens. I'm going to try to say you only sleep one hour after ishraq and get up again. You can spend this time in sleeping, but then from Zohar onwards, you should try to stay awake and be in Ibadah. If you need, you can take another 20-30 minute nap after Maghrib if you feel you need to refresh your body for to stand in Taraweeh, right? So try to manage your sleep, try to manage your talking, try to manage your eating. Try to transform your active eating in this month uh, uh, into Ibadah. Try to remember Allah each and every morsel that you eat. Try to think, just sit and reflect about the greatness of the Prophet his ihsanat, how much he did for you. So spend each and every moment doing something, keeping yourself busy. 
like somebody who is just a craze that this is the last seven days of his or her life and that he or she just has to spend them to her utmost. And like I, I think I may have mentioned last night is try to incorporate things in your schedule now that you can continue with after this month ends. So if you know that, okay, now I want to become a person who reads Quran every day. Now think about your daily life, your normal daily life outside of Ramadan. Think when would be a good time for you to start doing that and reading the Quran 10 to 15 minutes a day and start that right now. Whether it's after Fajr, after Asr, after Isha, at 10 p.m., if you want to, whatever you want to set it. Put those things in your life. So fix your schedule as much as you can here. Make for yourself a schedule that you can live with afterwards. And then whatever you would do in your studies and your time, give that time also here to Ibadah. So try to spend your time, be kind to one another, look after the needs of one another, let your brother go before you, let them take the food before you, let them use the bathroom before you, put them before you, raise them up ahead of you. Maybe if you act with humility for these few days, Allah Taala will also accept your humility and you will be raised up amongst his ranks. Inshallah then. Then for the questions, we should pray Ishraq. Uh, on, uh, today I will actually have to go for some time during the day. But those days that I'm here, then those people for, for any reason have anything personal or private or individual they want to discuss, then the daytime can be used for that. For example, tomorrow, uh, any time during the day, uh, pretty much anybody can come to me with any matter. Inshallah.